Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David J. Teese, Thomas W. Tusher, Professor in Global Business and Faculty Director of the Tusher Center for the, uh, for the Management of Intellectual Capital at the University of California, Berkeley Haas School of Business. We will discuss his article, Big Tech, Big Data, and Competition Policy, Favoring Dynamic Over Static Competition, which he co-authored with Nicholas Petit. So, David, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on, and I'm I'm glad that Ramsey Woodcock, my colleague, recommended you to me because I really enjoyed reading this paper, and I found it really a kind of provocative and thoughtful reflection on the current state of antitrust policy, which is very much in the news right now. Um, but for listeners who maybe necessarily antitrust scholars or antitrust specialists. Um, I wonder if you could talk about two concepts that I think are really important in the discussion that you present in your paper, namely the, the, you know, the distinction between static and dynamic competition. In other words, what do those terms mean and how are they different? Very good question. Well, static competition is really kind of what the textbooks assume is uh, some kind of ideal. It's a bit close to perfect competition, not something you actually observe in most real world industries. But the basic notion is that you have lots of different players and they've all got similar technology. Firms are more or less relatively homogeneous and that that this, so long as you've got lots of players and are engaged in active price competition, you've got real competition. That's sort of a, a simple textbook view. Uh, and it does characterize some industries where there's not much innovation. On the other hand, the type of competition that really brings benefit to consumers is not that. That's not an ideal, uh, not even a theoretical ideal, let alone a practical ideal. The real competition is that which is driven by innovation. That's where you see orders of magnitude improvements in products. That's where you see orders of magnitude of reductions in prices at the same time as you see improvements in products. It's the rough and tumble of disruption. It, it is the world that uh, is animated by technology. And of course, Silicon Valley is a quintessential representation of that. You know, I'm here at the University of California, Berkeley. That's what I've studied. I've studied innovation all my life. And I've uh, been so disappointed that antitrust policy and competition policy gives lip service to innovation. But when it comes down to operationalizing the frameworks, uh, there's a great tendency to forget about innovation and to marginalize it in part because it makes the analysis complicated. It's the intellectual path that's been chosen to operationalize competition policy. And since the Chicago School really brought economics in, uh, which was a great contribution to bring economics into antitrust, the problem is, in my view, they brought in the wrong type of economics. They brought in static micro theory uh, and left innovation out. Uh, so innovation... Uh, is really uh, had a hard job raising its head. But as Schumpeter told us, 
real competition comes from innovation. And that's why I've been on this quest to rework the basic methodology of competition policy and to try and operationalize it in a different way. So just to, to, to follow up on my previous question, is this distinction between static and dynamic uh, a competition something new or is it, has it always been with us? And if it's, if it's, if it's something that we've always been dealing with or always seen, sort of has anything changed in more recent years about the kind of relative balance of significance between the two of them? In some sense, it's always been with us in the marketplace. Methodologically, if you go back to Schumpeter and, and actually go back to Karl Marx, Karl Marx did a wonderful description of how technology upsets the existing order of an industry. So, um, you know, some people ask, uh, you know, how much did Schumpeter contribute? Was it really all there in Marx? I'm not talking about the normative side of Karl Marx, but his description of marketplace competition is actually quite good and um, quite robust in my view. So uh, Schumpeter, of course, highlighted the importance of innovation, but, but most economists that read Schumpeter get distracted into this monopoly uh, versus you know, competition side of, of, of Schumpeter. And, and, and that's, in my view, almost a red herring. Uh, but, but the whole economics profession has been chasing that red herring um, for, you know, close to 100 years. Um, the real Schumpeter, read correctly, and rather than just taking out two or three paragraphs, is, is about uh, a system that's in disequilibrium. Uh, and is driven by innovation and, and other elements of change. Uh, and that innovation is, no matter where it comes from, is a primary driver of, 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 of competition. So I call static competition weak tea. Uh, and and uh, that actually the, the champions of competition policy that choose to ignore innovation uh, have been, you know, essentially leading us to drink weak tea. And there's a much stronger coffee out there, which uh, is obvious to the man on the street or the lady on the street, for that matter. So um, we're we're already uh, in, in a place where there's a disjunction between what people know to be true and the basic methodologies that we employ in competition policy. Well, so in your article, you argue that this distinction between static and dynamic competition is important to how we think about or maybe should think about antitrust policy. Sort of how does antitrust policy think about competition today and how do you think it should think about competition differently? Okay. Well, first of all, to the extent to which Antitrust recognizes competition, excuse me, antitrust or competition policy recognizes innovation. They see the causation as only one way. Namely, yes, uh, we do need innovation, but we need more competition because competition is what drives innovation. And that, of course, is true. But there's the other side of it, just as powerful, which is that innovation actually drives competition. And uh, to look at only um, one side of the equation, uh, is to misunderstand actually the role of, of big tech. If big tech is alive and well on innovation, and it clearly is, then if we're just saying, oh, give me more little firms to go and take a bite at big tech versus let's 
think about the competition and the nature of it that that is being delivered from big tech, then you know it's a very different story. So we're 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 missing uh, in our current policy debates the tremendous competition across multiple sectors. Uh, um, Nicholas Pettit and I referred to this as broad spectrum competition. Um, none of these companies are in their own swim lanes. You know, they're crisscrossing and um, Google's biggest competitor is probably Amazon. Uh, you know, Apple competes with, with Amazon and Google. Um, you know, Netflix is all in there too. I mean, the, there there is no limit to the boundary space, if you will. Economists like to, and antitrust scholars talk about relevant markets as a you know, unit of analysis, but um, I don't think it makes sense anymore. Or if you do have a relevant market, you got to realize it's got to be incredibly broad to take in perhaps entire sectors of the economy. So all of our apparatus is not tuned. Uh, the apparatus of contemporary competition policy is tuned for the industrial economy. You know, the industrial economy started disappearing about 30 years ago. We have no excuse for not, you know, doubling down and reworking the models. I mean, I can understand why uh, a lot of good people in America are fed up with intellectuals because we, you know, tend to protect our turf. Uh, and uh, economists have been very slow to recognize that the world is changing much faster than the models that they prefer and admire. And uh, we have a social duty as scientists to really address the changing reality. And um, I think there's uh, a lot to be hoped for in terms of where we should be compared to where we are. Well, so maybe to expand on that a little bit, I feel like there's a kind of conventional wisdom among economists studying antitrust policy about how we should think about competition. But then there's also a really big debate happening right now with a lot of kind of newer voices coming in and criticizing that that conventional wisdom. And what I took away from your paper was that you kind of think that both of them are wrong, but maybe for slightly different reasons. So I, w- I mean, I wonder if you could kind of characterize for me what the sort of conventional wisdom and the new critique are, and then explain why it is you think they're both missing something. Uh, that's that's a fair assessment. Uh, so the conventional wisdom, which has been built on static equilibrium models, um, has really, I think, failed to address head-on the new type of competition that we see. And uh, in the eyes of um, many uh, so-called progressives on the left, uh, they think antitrust isn't working or hasn't worked. And there's some truth to that. But instead of looking for a new way, instead of looking for a new model that puts innovation front and center because that's what's going on, they revert back to the past, to the you know, the so-called neo or new Brandeisians. Are, uh, oh, it's it's the railroads and big oil all over again. It's utter nonsense. Um, uh, I mean, the difference between uh, you know Google and and Standard Oil is night and day. Um, uh, the, the, those models uh, are, are not the refuge to get understanding. And so really what's happening is I think um, the politicians and many people 
that are concerned that there are issues are throwing their hands up and 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 walking away completely from economics. Um, and uh, and and that's why we need a new type of economics that's got more credibility and uh, uh, is capable of being operationalized so that it can address these issues. So there's a crying need for uh, for this dynamic competition framework to be embellished. And the sad thing is, you know, there must be tens of thousands of economists around the world that are working on competition policy. And I could count on one hand the number of folks that are really trying to think of uh, unorthodox but better ways of uh, bringing innovation economics to bear on competition policy. So uh, it's very frustrating for me because there is a way forward. Uh, was pointed, um, you know, by others, by Schumpeter, that was pointed out, you know, 100 years ago, and, and we're still sitting on our hands. The reason we're sitting on our hands is is because uh, methodologically, economists like to live in the world of equilibrium, uh, and they like to have hard models. But, you know, and, and George Akalov has a nice piece on this in the Journal of Economic Literature, where he says there's a trade-off between relevance and hardness. And economists have chosen the hardness. You know, if, if I can't build a, a model, then it's, uh, it's not good science. Well, in fact, I would argue the opposite. If it's irrelevant to the facts, then it's not good science, even if you've got a formal model behind it. So, so that's the trade-off that we've, uh, we need to reassess, uh, reposition ourselves on that uh, Akalov trade-off uh, chart. Why is it that dynamic competition is hard to model? Well, um, because it's chaotic. Um, and um, we like to have an economic smooth, twice differentiable production functions um, so you might say that it's the laziness of the profession. Um, of course, the profession wouldn't see it as laziness. They would see it as uh, their pursuit of science. Uh, but it's Newtonian mathematics. Um, and, uh, you know, there are evolutionary models. I mean, there is the beginnings of some work in evolutionary economics. Uh, and, you know, behind it all, we have to see economics as a process. Uh, that's, a, you know, a fairly um, old idea, um, but, but it's been lost with uh, the desire to mathematize and bring a formal model. So if you don't have a formal model behind something, it's hard to get credibility in the economics profession. Or put differently, if you have a formal model, you have undeserved credibility. Uh, now we're paying the price uh, for those bad habits uh, that have been going on for 50 years in the profession. Well, so you suggested that Standard Oil and Google, for example, are night and day in the way we should think about them in relation to antitrust policy. I wonder if you could kind of like point to some factors or, or reasons why they're so different and why we should think about them differently from a competition policy perspective. Well, I mean, first of all, Standard Oil was primarily an oil company, an energy company, um, and 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 it was you know competing to supply uh, fuel, uh, and liquid hydrocarbons, uh, fundamentally to uh, the uh, transportation industry, and and to some extent to to heating and, and power. 
Um, and, uh, you know, there were a fixed number of refineries where scale really mattered. Look, scale and scope do matter in data, but data is, you know, different from oil because of reusability. Um, uh, you know, oil, you can only burn it once. And some people would say, thank God for that. Uh, but data, you can use it multiple times. Uh, and, and, uh, the ability, what's behind big tech today is this ability to build, to manage, uh, to curate and analyze these very large databases. Uh, now, you might say in some loose sense of some analogy to refining, but it's not about refining this data. It's about new combinations uh, and putting this stuff together in creative ways and distilling other information and learning from it. So oil and data are not the same thing. Um and that's not to say there aren't some economies of scope and scale that are a characteristic of both. Uh, but the, the breadth of competition you get is different uh, in the case of, of, uh, of, uh, of Google and, and also the rate of change of innovation. Yes, there was innovation in the petroleum industry, particularly in petroleum refining uh, and then in exploration. There's been a steady incremental improvement in the technologies of open this bit, what you see in the realm of big data with AI and so forth, there's orders of magnitude more rapid and more powerful innovation that's taking place. So, so uh, you know, the, the metaphors are not particularly good ones. Um, and uh, the kind of um, competition that you get is, is, is very different. I mean, you did get elements of dynamic competition from uh, the oil industry when it's in periods of rapid expansion. Um, but it's nowhere near as dynamic as what you get from a technology driven because it's resource driven more than it was technology driven. Do you think that increases the level of risk, like competitive risk for the companies involved? I mean, I kind of got the impression that Standard Oil's business model was maybe less risky than the business model of a modern big data tech company. Yes. Um, I, I think the, the, disruption, the amount of disruption that you get in the technology sector is much greater than in the uh, energy sector historically, because the energy sector historically has been natural resource driven, the technology sector uh, otherwise. Now, the energy where solar becomes more important, solar is a technology actually more than it is a natural, well, I guess it's a natural resource in some fundamental sense, but the technology factor is, is, is much different. And, um, uh, and also, you know, there was, um, there are multiple folks that are collecting customer data. And in some sense, there are multiple standard oils around already compared to the old standard oil model. Well, so in the paper, you you used the concept of economic rents, but explain that there are different kinds of economic rents and that we should be concerned about some kinds of economic rents more or maybe differently than other kinds. And specifically, you talk about Ricardian rents, Schumpeterian rents, and monopoly rents. And so monopoly rents are sort of like the traditional ones we worry about when it comes to uh, competition policy. How are Ricardian rents and Schumpeterian rents differently? And how should we think about them in a competition policy context? That's, it's, it's a very good question. And conceptually, they're very different. So uh, Schumpeterian rents come as a return to innovation and to discovery. 
uh, Ricardian rents come as a return to having some scarce input. Um, uh, and there are analogies between the industrial economy and the new economy in that regard. But typically, the period of time that you've got a scarce, res uh, uh, a a scarce resource, you know, it could be some uh, technologically bottlenecked uh, part of the system, uh, but it eventually gets competed away very quickly. And, and monopoly rents are those which are essentially due to some kind of restraint of trade of one kind or another. And, and the social welfare implications of these are enormously different. Uh, Schumpeterian rents, you, 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 you want to have them um, because that's what drives innovation. And, and the other big difference, the other big difference while I'm on this point between oil uh, and, and, and between innovation is the spillover effects. I mean, we know from, you know, 70 years of research and innovation economics, there are enormous positive spillovers from innovation and that the social returns are much greater than the private returns. And none of this is taken into account in, in competition policy. Um, and, and, and with Standard Oil, that wasn't true. The private and social returns were probably considerably closer together than they are in, in the tech sector. So, so these are a, a, a very big differences that, that, that have to be taken into account. So I think a framework, a welfare framework, has to, you know, recognize these three types of rent. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you get carte blanche if you've got strong Schumpeterian rents and that somehow or other you get exempt from antitrust. I mean, I've always got Section 1, the Sherman Act still stands, um, in my view, of the new competition policy. There should not be uh, conspiracies uh, and all that stuff should be treated pretty much the way it is. So we're talking about section two, which is monopoly. And, and I think we have to have a very different understanding. I do not see um, the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples as, as, as resting on their laurels. Uh, you know, the traditional economist notion of a monopolist is they have the easy life. They sit back in the chair and they smoke their cigars and they're confident they're going to have a stream of profits forever. But as Andy Grove uh, said, uh, he was the CEO of Intel, in the tech sector, only the paranoid survive. And even if you've got significant market power, you're not going to have that for more than one round of innovation. Uh, Andy Grove put it at Intel, we, we, our current market position just gives us a seat at the table for the next round of innovation. This is dramatically different from other sectors of the economy. So there's a complete disconnect between the easy life that the monopolist is supposed to have and the hard driving, maniacally competitive life which these so-called big monopolists have. It's not a nonsense to say that they've got the market power uh, of a traditional monopolist. Do they have some market power? Well, probably in some sense, depending on how you define it, they have some temporary advantage. And it may, it may seem to be formidable to other companies that are starting up with next to nothing. But to other big tech firms, it seems very formidable. Um, so, um, look, we need new frameworks. We need new language to talk about this stuff. Um, and uh, it's been far too slow in coming. And I'm really worried we're going to make some huge policy mistakes because we haven't done the hard work that's necessary and political forces are getting out ahead of any type of uh, economic analysis at this point. Well, so a really critical 
concept in competition policy is consumer welfare. But you distinguish between short-term and long-term consumer welfare. I wonder if you could talk about the difference between the two and why you think that that's something important that we should think about. Yes. Um, So in my uh, dynamic competition framework, uh, I I still hold on to the consumer welfare standard, but really underline the fact that it must be long-term because the agencies have made the mistake for too long that, uh, you know, um, they're looking at uh, any impact of business behavior in a, in a short-term two-year period or something like that. And, and, and so as a result, you know, you find the agencies being hostile, for instance, to, to royalties because royalties, quote, raise prices. Well, that's utter nonsense compared to what? Um, you know, if, if some company licenses its technology rather than you're using it internally and it licenses multiple players, it's immediately increased competition from doing so. And so to look at a price effect of a royalty um, uh, negatively is, is to misunderstand the very fact that, you know, innovators always struggle to get any type of return to their innovation. If you look at the spillovers, you know, the, the, the spillovers are very large compared to what actually the, the pioneers in the technology space are able to capture for themselves. And I've done a lot of research trying to understand the reasons for that. All of this is to say that we've got to look at this uh, with a long-term view. And if you have the long-term view, you bring in a place for innovation. The short-term view will implicitly and indirectly have the collateral effect of squeezing out innovation. You're going to find a lot of business practices you don't like because, you know, innovation is something that that actually um, takes takes time. Uh, you make the investment today and the investment is 10, 15, sometimes 20, 30 years into the future. Uh, so, so having a long-term view um, really counteracts some methodological mistakes that we're otherwise going to make and have made. In the paper, you used a term that I wasn't familiar with, which was dynamic capabilities. I wonder if you could talk about that and, and why you think it's important. Yes. Uh, you know, to simplify the analysis, well, we economists have essentially read management out of competition policy. There is, uh, well, we've, we've read management out of the theory of the firm, and we've read the entrepreneur out of the theory of the firm. Um, and, and this is a fundamental problem. Because there's no room for the entrepreneur and for managers, we, we end up uh, you know, looking at complex phenomena and not really understanding what's going on because we put way too much emphasis on market structure. We took you know, way too much emphasis on various forms of pricing behavior and so forth. And if we're trying to understand marketplace success, uh, anybody that's been to business school would tell you that the management team uh, is likely to have played a role. Um, and fortunately, there's guys like Nicholas Bloom in the economics literature that are discovering that management matters. And the fact that now you can get a paper published in economics which says that management matters speaks not to the fact that management matters. It speaks to the fact that economists have had a fundamental lacunae in their theory for a very long period of time, and they should be embarrassed by that. Uh, but few of them are. A few of us are. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll bear some of the burden here. It's my primary credential as I'm an economist. 
So dynamic capabilities recognizes that the reasons why firms get ahead is often nothing to do with the fact they've got some artificial advantage. It's that they got really smart, hard-driving management team. And you, you, you look at the Steve Jobs, you look at the Elon Musk of the world, you look at the Jeff Bezos of the world. These guys produce tremendous benefits for the consumer because of who they are and the decisions they made and the bets that they made. Um, you know, we, we should. Too many people in the public think it's all about making money and profits, but. But really, that's ancillary to a broader vision. I mean, you know, look, look at a guy like Musk. He's trying to figure out how to get us to Mars. And along the way, you know, we get SpaceX. Um, um, and uh, um, you know, there's a, a complete misunderstanding, I think, of what drives these tech entrepreneurs. But more importantly, we, we have to factor in um, their place. And, and this is particularly true in Europe. Europe is now toying with its digital markets act and they're worried because there aren't significant number of european high-tech firms uh, and they should be worried about that but the reason is not because of monopoly behavior by big american firms in my view it's primarily because of the lack of an entrepreneurial culture in europe and uh um and i've pointed that out um uh, to uh, a number of, of, of audiences. And that entrepreneurial culture uh, spills over into the enterprise. And that's what Dynamic Capabilities is about, which is keeping that entrepreneurial culture alive, even in big companies. If you don't have it, you, you, you'll still get innovation. You'll get what I call incremental innovation. But to get the radical innovation, the big step change improvements that society thirsts for, that consumers want, that national uh, economies need, uh, you, 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 you need to make, you know, big, bold, um, gutsy bets from time to time. And boards of directors are now, you know, really suffocating that both in Europe and the United States. Public markets, to some extent, suffocate that. Thank goodness we've got a very vibrant private equity sector now. But uh, I can tell you, when I look around, the companies that have got the strong dynamic capabilities are ones where there's usually a founder in place and the founder has enough shares that they can actually stare down the board of directors and say, no, this is what we're doing. We're going to take these what appear to everybody else to be big risks. But there's an even bigger risk, which is doing nothing. If you're an incumbent, the big risk is doing nothing. But we get to do you know, risk management, it gets confused with uncertainty management. The game is about managing under deep uncertainty, and that's why you need dynamic capabilities. Uh, and absent those capabilities, your firms won't perform. So we should we should understand if we're going to understand, you know, why firms end up with large shares of market. You you want to ask the question: Is, is there a superior foresight and acumen here? I mean, we have the words in from Judge Learned Hand um, that that tell us that some companies have superior foresight and acumen. Why isn't that factored into antitrust? In fact, the case law is actually a lot better uh, for dealing with the dynamic competition ideas than, 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 than the economics, the law and economics textbooks, uh, because courts do get confronted with reality. Uh, economists are able to hide from it, uh, but courts cannot. Uh, because all the evidence usually comes in and and they have to deal with it. So 
So the situation actually with the case law is, 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 is there's actually enough, you know, buttons to press and doors that are open that I think you, you, you could, without too much difficulty, launch a, a, a dynamic competition framework and have it accepted by the courts. Well, so, I mean, antitrust competition policy really does sort of lie at the intersection of economics and law. And reading your paper, I was heartened and pleased to see uh, that you were referring to a lot of legal scholarship as well as economics scholarship. I wonder, I mean, do you find that legal scholarship and the law in general can be helpful or informative in your work as an economist? Well, yes. In the particular paper, of course, I have a co-author who's a lawyer, Nicholas Pettit. Uh, but I've worked these dynamic competition ideas for a long time. And I, I think, yes, legal, legal scholarship um, uh, is, is, is helpful, but, but, it, but it needs, uh, I mean, look, it, it, I, the Chicago School's contribution of getting economics into the law and really launching the field of law and economics is, is unparalleled in terms of its contribution. Um, and I said at the time, this is fantastic, but you know what? You brought in the wrong economics. Um, and um, I remember doing this at a conference in Berkeley at the Centennial of the Sherman Act, and uh, the room was uh, very silent. But one person spoke up, which was Bill Baxter, who said, uh, this may sound, uh, this may sound like he's a, a little bit... Uh, uh, off uh, the uh, off the commons right now, but in fact, uh, he predicted that over time, people would come to recognize that we needed a dynamic economic framework to deal with competition policy. So, so um, um, you know, the reason why the Chicago School thing worked is because, in part, it was simple, it was straightforward. That's you know, intermediate micro theory, you can teach that to lawyers and to judges. And uh, don't misunderstand me. I think much of it is valuable. The economic thinking is valuable. So so at least we got to stage one, which we got economic thinking. Now we have to bring in, in, in innovation economics, not the static version. So we don't have to throw everything out. We just have to throw a good chunk of it out. Um, and... Um, Sadly, it won't be quite as simple, but I think people are ready now for something different because they know that's run its course. And um, I, I think we can um, we won't get as much precision, but the precision we thought we had was false precision anyway. So let's move on. Well, so, David, in, in closing, antitrust is really in the air right now because the Biden administration is making all kinds of choices when it comes to kind of thinking about long-term competition policy. And, you know, in many respects, it seems to be choosing a lot of kind of critics of the kind of conventional wisdom on competition policy to bring in to the administration. If someone from the Biden administration were to call you today and say, what do you think we should be worried about? How do you think we should be thinking about these problems going forward? What kind of choices do you think we should be making? What would you tell them? Well, I, I, I would tell them that, that there, there undoubtedly are some measures that can be um, 
enacted that would improve things. But until we have a framework that, that is capable of addressing this in a meaningful way, I'd say go slow. Let's put a crash program in place to really understand competition as it is, not as we think it is, um, or as what some people summarize it to be. So um, um, I, I think I would I would go very very cautiously because the chances of making things worse from an overall economic point of view are very very high, and you know we got competition out there from China as well uh, and. You know, I'm worried that, for instance, if you open up, do what the Europeans want us to do, which is essentially um, make all consumer data available to businesses for some kind of uh, friend royalty rate, it's going to lead to tremendous free riding and will bust up the incentives of people to build platforms, um, will fall behind in areas like artificial intelligence because of the chaos we're going to create. And uh, in essence, you know, we hand over leadership and key technologies uh, to strategic rivals. Uh, that is um, something that concerns me deeply. So we cannot think any longer about competition policy isolated from technology policy and isolated from industrial policy. So while we go to fix this, let's also at the same time bust down the barriers between competition policy, industrial policy and, and uh um, and antitrust policy. So uh, there's a big opportunity here too. And innovation can be the thread that links them all together. So I, I'm, I actually see the potential here if we go slow uh, and, and, and we try to bring a unified approach to these issues, which we must given the world we're living in, that we could end up actually being better off. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed reading your paper and talking to you about it. It was uh, really enlightening, and I learned a lot talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you. Banana oil. 
I'll tell you what I mean When a girl says I'm just 20 That's banana oil And if money dad has plenty That's banana oil I wonder what's become of maids Used to wear their hair in braids When you took them dancing Ordered only lemonade Yes, my hair is naturally curly <laughs> That's banana oil And I've got to be home early More banana oil Who says girls hate new clothes to wear? Who says older men won't stare? And who says our moths don't bob their hair? That's banana oil Birds have got is just banana oil. 